In a world full of boring stories, bad videos, and marketing misinformation, one very tall man with a weird last name will use his microphone. This thing on. Use his video marketing knowledge. It's the red button, right? And use his friends. Please be on the show. To change that. You are listening to The Garlic Marketing Show with Ian. What? No, that's how you pronounce it. Well, if you say so, your host, Ian Garlic. Are you ready to level up your business using video marketing? Are you sick of getting price shopped, losing an inexperienced local competition, and just getting overall bad leads from the internet that don't understand the value of working with you? Are you a chiropractor, lawyer, doctor, dentist that just feels you're not charging enough for your services and not getting the people and the level of clients and patients that you deserve? Are you ready to become the local authority and drive more pre-sold leads to your business? I'm going to show you how to in a 90-minute training I created to level up your business. And by using these video strategies, we've helped grow businesses from six to seven figures over the past 12 years. And the training is free. Just click on the show notes or go to authenticweb.media slash level up to sign up for the free training. Welcome to the Garlic Marketing Show. I've got an exciting guest. I'm excited because I, I nerd out on the stuff. You guys know I love audiobooks. Listen to 200 of them. Well, our guest today has narrated like four times as many audiobooks as I've listened to. Uh, over 950 audiobooks um, won all the awards. And listen, you'll hear his voice and you'll recognize it if you listen to any audiobooks. Sean Pratt, thank you so much for being on the show. Thank you for much, very much for having me on. I appreciate it. Yeah, it's exciting. Um, you know, real quick, just tell me your story of how you got into audiobooks because you've been doing them since for a long time. How did yeah, you 1996. get? Nineteen ninety six. Yeah. Um, I, okay, so my background, very quickly, I I grew up as an actor in Oklahoma City. I started acting as a kid. Went off to get my BFA in acting at college at the College of Santa Fe. By the time I graduated, I was working in movies and TV in the Southwest. But I wanted to be a classical theater actor, so I went to New York and worked off-Broadway with a company there called The Pearl, and then I worked around regional theaters doing classics. And it was while I was in Washington, D.C. in uh, 1994, I was doing a Shakespeare play at the Shakespeare Theater in Washington. It's a big, big regional theater. And uh, an actor there, his name is David Hilder. He's now a playwright in New York City. Uh, we were in the green room just hanging out, and I turned to him, and I said, so what do you do when you're not working? And he said, oh, I narrate audiobooks." I was like, what's that? I had the slightest <laughs> idea. Um, so we sat, we sat down over a cup of coffee and he told me about it. And I was, it was interesting, but you know, he said, if you happen to move down to this area, give me a holler and I can introduce you to some people. And I thought that was very generous of him. And, but at the time I was working in theater, I didn't really, you know, have too much interest, but sure enough, two years later, I moved down to D.C. to sort of start my career over again in my life. I moved in with my girlfriend. And uh, so I looked him up. He introduced me to Grover Gardner, who's also a real big icon in our industry as a narrator. He works for Blackstone Audiobooks as a casting director as well. Uh, Grover and I, we cut a little demo. He shopped it around. And my very first two clients were Books on Tape and Blackstone Audio. And that was 
23 years and almost a thousand books ago. Jesus, so, a thousand books. Yeah. <laughs> you know, there's so much I want to talk to you today about, like who who should be reading their book, the importance of having an audiobook. And you know, we talked about a little bit of the platforms um, and also the techniques, because I mean, it, it's it, it's an important thing because it, 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 to do it well, I'm sure, uh, I'm sure there's things that are obvious and things that aren't obvious. Just like with the podcast, you know, there's things that are obvious, but uh, the long format, man, over time, I can only imagine. Um, but I wanted to ask you a few questions first, just about, you know, your experience with audiobooks. How do you, you know, how do you go about choosing which ones you're going to do at a thousand? You know, it's, it's, it's gotta be tough. <laughs> well, I, I came into the industry in 1996, right when it was just blasting off. You know, it, it was around that time that audio pub, uh, book publishers and audiobook publishers were really seeing the potential. Um, uh, before, audiobooks were more of a marketing gimmick, you know, in the 80s and into the early 90s. They were done, you know, you'd hire a famous actor who'd do a abridged version of some book, and then they'd rent a studio space in New York or L.A. Mm-hmm. It cost a lot of money to create the audiobook, but more and more in the early 90s, the demand for audiobooks was growing on this, you know, by orders of magnitude every year. It was crazy. And so that the audiobook publishers needed to turn to um, home-based studio narrators for the majority of the work, and that's what I was. I, I've only, of the close to a 1,000 books I've done, I've only narrated a handful in a studio with a director. They've all been just me. I'm an autodidact. I taught myself how to do this. Um, But once again, when I started, the industry was in a very different place than it is now as far as the number of people who want to get into it, the stakes involved. So I just started, and then it really was just another facet of show business. You know, coming from a theater background or film and television, the casting directors get to know you, and they know what your type is. Okay, so I'm, you know, I'm tall, I'm six foot four, you know, 240 pounds. So I, and I, there's certain parts that they would cast me in. And so in the audiobook world, your voice becomes the thing they're casting. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, you know, I, I've, I've auditioned for only a handful of books over the years. Mainly it's getting to know the casting people. They hear my voice and they can figure out, as you already know, as an audiobook listener, that certain voices just fit certain genres better than others. Yep. So like my friend Johnny Heller, who's a great narrator, Johnny has this Chicago kind of, hey, how's it going kind of a voice. And um, he's like, he's, he's, uh, he sort of sounds like a even more amped up version of, than Joe Pesci. And uh, Johnny does a lot of noir fiction, a lot of comedy. And so you can argue that his voice for noir fiction is a better fit than my voice. So it's really what it really to answer your question. It's about the casting people at those places, knowing what I'm right for. And then they, that's when they say, we would like for you to either audition for their book with nine times out of 10. It's like, we know this one's the right one for you. Can you get it into your schedule? And then what's your process for, I mean, because obviously you have to get to know the book, get to know the, the material and, and you've done a lot of stuff in the personal development space. You've done it across several ones. What's your process for getting to know the material and how to approach it? Um, well, if it's a piece of fiction, you always, always have to read the entire piece first, because then you're thinking about character development. You're thinking about character voices. You need to know that the mystery voice in chapter five is so-and-so in chapter 20, you know, that kind of stuff. But when it comes to nonfiction, well, now, 
when I first started, I read every book I did, but I don't read the books before I do them. I skim them and I get, I have a system I've developed over the years and I'll tell you why I can do this is, um, let me give you a quick anecdote. I, I have a friend of mine, Jerry Dale McFadden. He's the keyboardist for a band called the Mavericks. And we went to school together. Jerry and I have known each other since we were kids. And if you put a piece of music in front of Jerry, the cold, and he starts playing it, he will know everything he needs to know about that piece of music in the first eight to 16 bars. He'll go, okay, it's key of C. Oh, this is jazz. Oh, it's ragtime. It's Scott Joplin. Boom, he's off. And he knows exactly where the the bridge is going to be, how it's going to modulate and key and all that stuff because he's played piano for so long and he's played, quote, that kind of music so many times that he knows there's not going to be any surprises. So when mm-hmm. I get a book like uh, Relentless, when I get a book like Relentless, say, I even though I'm even though the author has a very different sound than I do v- vocally, I, I I hear the music of what he's trying to say. I can hear his voice, and I use that in the abstract sense. Yeah, I know what he's trying to the message he's trying to put off, and I know that because I've narrated a couple dozen books in the same kind of musical family as his. But beyond that, I do you know I have a little method I use where I research the author and think about who the audience is. I examine the text. I look for any research I have to do, um, and then I make you know decisions as a narr- as a director rather, because a book and an audio book are two different animals. People mm-hmm. don't realize that. Um, for instance, uh, as uh, when I wear my director's hat, I'm deciding what's going to be left in, what's going to be taken out, and what's going to be changed in an audio book. People don't think they think that nonfiction is also verbatim like fiction, but it's not. So, for instance, we never narrate the publisher's page, the table of contents, the author's acknowledgments, the bibliography, or the index, ever. Mm-hmm. Right? Then beyond that, we, where do we change the text? Well, we call them listeners, not readers. We say in the, in the quote ab- previous, not the quote above, because there's no up or down in an audiobook. When we have an acronym, we always describe what the acronym is the first time we use it. We always expand abbreviations. Um, And then there's also the research you have to do. How do you say that phrase in Latin? How do you say this chemical formula? How do you say, mihai chick sent mihai? (laughs) So, you know, you have to know all those things. And that comes with practice, too. But we, there's a a book and an audio book are two different animals. They're very close. But a nonfiction audio book is different. It's just a different, uh, it's a slightly different version of the author's intention, their truth that they want to share. And well, we talked about this, and I see a growing importance in the audiobook. I mean, how? And I, I mean, I feel it's if you have a nonfiction audiobook or nonfiction book, you need to have an audiobook. Um, that's how I learn. I do both at the same time. But how, can you give a specific example of when you've seen an audiobook change the author, change the dynamics of the book, change the sales of the book of a regular book? Oh, yeah. Well, Relentless is a great example. I mean, his that book was, uh, you know, it was selling well, but then the audiobook version came out. And, and you know, I don't want to, I'm not going to take credit for that. My performance somehow made all the difference. It was just that it reached a different segment of the market, and that's the key. Um, you know, I was recently asked about, you know, why are audiobooks growing at such a huge rate? You know, I think there's going to be 
gosh, 50,000 new audiobooks produced this year. And wow. the market itself is going to top o- U.S. domestic sales are around $3 billion this oh year. Oh, my God. Um, and what I said was, from my perspective, it's the velocity of our lives that have driven sales in audiobooks. You're a busy guy, right? Mm-hmm. And you're stuck in traffic. You don't want to be, you don't have time to read, but you want to take in information. So what do you do? Well, there's the audiobook. And that's, you know, people like you are the main re- driver for these audiobooks. And it's something about just to put a pin in that, I always tell my students when they're narrating, um, always for, remember 95% of the time when someone's listening to an audiobook, they are always doing something else. They're driving to work, they're making dinner, they're folding the laundry, they're whatever. And so you have to have a performance that's engaging enough to pull their attention away from that, that they'll actually take in the information. Mm-hmm. But the, but so, so, so like with Relentless, which I think it was a great book to begin with, the content was fantastic. Um, it just, it just opened up a whole new market segment of people that would, that need to hear his, his truth as it were. And that's what drove it. That's, you know, it, it's also for people who, you know, he so the amount of sales say on, on a, the e-reader, like a Kindle or, or whatever, that's another market segment as well. People who want to read, but they want to have the convenience of, of just having a little tablet. Um, a smart writer is, these days has to be savvy enough to realize that whatever book, and I use that term loosely, has to come out in print, in its e-form, and then finally to figure out a way to get an audiobook version of that book created. And so... Now it, it's here's the second part now. So it's like, okay, where, okay, I have to get an audiobook. Do I need to, should I narrate it myself or should I hire someone like Sean Pratt? How and which, which should I do? Okay. So there's a number of reasons why you might want to lean one way or the other. And so it's, it's, it's a series of like decision trees almost. So if you make the decision that you need to get an audiobook version of it done, then the next point is, do you do it or does somebody else do it? So let's go down the do I do it decision tree. So the first uh, thing I would say is um, you need to evaluate yourself as a performer now because unlike when you go to a uh, – you know, authors, you know, they read their work for comprehension – but now you're reading your work for performance. It's not reading. It's a performance now. Um, a quick anecdote. Uh, years ago, back in 1990, my first wife, Karen, and I lived in midtown Manhattan. She was an aspiring writer. And one Saturday, she came to me and she said, hey, a bunch of my friends, we're going to go to Central Park. And we're going to listen to some authors read from their work. <clears throat> it's like a, you know, evening under the stars thing. I want to go. I said, great, let's do it. I'd never been to one. So a local bookstore was sponsoring it. We take our blanket and our basket, you know, wine and cheese and stuff, and we sit down with our friends. And the MC gets up there. She introduces the first author, and he is terrible. He mumbles his way through it. He never looks at us. He just sort of just, I just, I don't know, stumbles his way through his own book. Okay, so the next, the MC comes out, introduces the next author, was a woman, and she was better. But she was ridiculously nervous. In fact, she, she mentioned a few times that, that how she'd never done a big reading before. So she, you could literally hear the fear in her voice. Mm-hmm. The, uh, the third author gets up there, and he'd done a, several of these, but he, was, he just sort of rapid-fired his way through the text. You heard it, but there was no sense of, I'm in front of an audience giving, doing this thing. 
Well, then she introduces the fourth author, and that was uh, Tom Robbins, the man who wrote Skinny Legs and All and Jitterbug oh, yeah. Perfume. And so out walks this, as I seem to recall, this courtly Southern gentleman, right? He's full of charisma and presence. He looked at the audience. He made some jokes. He got up there and he read from one of his books. And we, for that 15 to 30 minutes, it was magic. And he held in stark relief the difference between what he did and what the other three didn't do, which was he performed from his own material. They did some version of reading. And that's a critical thing because you... Uh, an audiobook, whether it's fiction or nonfiction, the ultimate yardstick we use to measure whether or not it was successful for the listener is pretty simple. Was it entertaining? Right? When you listened to my recording of Relentless, you ask yourself, beyond the author's words, was my performance entertaining? And if it was, then you probably stuck through the entire book and you had a good time. But if it's not entertaining... If, my, if I'm do, clock in a bad performance, you're going to hate the book and you're going to give me a one-star review or it's going to affect your overall perception of the, of the author's work. So when an author is thinking about wanting to do their own material, the first question is, or the first realization is, this must be a performance. And then they have to ask themselves, can they meet the level of performance necessary to make an entertaining event for the listener? Right. Mm -hmm. That may require them to get some acting coaching, some public speaking coaching to prepare with somebody like me who's, you know, there's several of us out there that prep authors for recording their material. So the first step is in that little side part of the, the decision tree is how well of a good of a performer are they? OK, um, but let's say they decide that they are a good enough performer. OK, fine. Now we come to how do you go about producing the audiobook? I think one of the worst things you can ever do if you're a novice, as far as narrating is concerned, is for an author to get their own equipment and record their own book all by themselves in their own little space. Because the quality of the audio may be terrible. They're not going to have anyone directing them, right? Mm -hmm. And they're not, they're not uh, skilled enough to know when they're being entertaining and when they're not, frankly. That's the worst option, okay? Um, if they decide that they're going to go down this path, I strongly recommend they get some preparation. They work with some people to get them ready. The stamina involved in narrating a book is tremendous. We can talk about that in a minute. Yeah, but, I've heard that. Um, <laughs> yeah, it's, um, but you know, it, it, it's going to be worth it to spend the money to go into a professional recording, work with a technician in a, not necessarily, you know, some fancy schmancy recording studio. It might be a technician who has a sound booth in his home that he uses for voiceover work and so on. That's fine too. But to have another person there running the engineering, so your focus is only on your trying to get the performance. You may also want to hire a director to work with you, right? To help coach you. Say, no, that was too flat. Let's, you know, let's take a break. Come back in five minutes. Let's work again. You know, this is an investment. And I think far too many authors think well, I'm just reading it, you know, and it's just going to be one more thing out there for sale. It's a very dismissive kind of, not for all of them. I've seen authors do amazing things with their mm -hmm. reads. But some authors are like, well, it's just another, yeah, I'll just put it out there. Just get it out there. Well, what they don't realize, of course, is that they're going to get, if it's just thrown out there and it's not of good quality, then it's going to get bad reviews on Audible. 
and someone may be thinking about getting it, and they won't, and that's one sale they miss. And just to step away from that little bit there, when I said that a good author has to be working on all three plat- platforms, if you're an independent author or working with a small-time publisher and you want to go for that big contract with <clears throat> you know, HarperCollins or Random House, trust me, they pay attention to all three sales on all three f- platforms. How, how well is your book selling in print, electronic, and now audiobook? Because audiobook sales now are a huge portion of the profits of the publishing industry itself. Mm-hmm. So if you turn out a crappy audiobook and it doesn't sell, it may end up being the tipping point that keeps you from moving forward in your own career. And if it's, if it's lousy, you can't even market it. You can't even use it. You know, it's something you want to hide now. You can't. It's not a feather in your cap. It's an albatross around your neck. <laughs> um, so that's so so that's the decision tree if I'm going to do it myself. And there's more to it we can talk about. But the other one is if you want somebody else to narrate it. So then it's about um, I would tell new authors uh, the best place to go looking for a narrator like that if you don't have someone specific in mind is acx.com. That stands for Audio Creative Exchange. It's uh, owned by Amazon. Uh, which also owns Audible, by the way. <laughs> and it's a great place for indie authors and narrators to come together, especially new narrators, to come together to publish audiobooks. They have different kinds of contracts. They can have royalty share where the author and the narrator split a portion of the every download. The author can also find people that work for what we call PFH, which is per finished hour rates. So if you have it, to make the math easy, if you are doing, if you're, if you are, if you wrote a book, Ian, and it's ten hours long, and you find a narrator that that you really like, and they're charging $150 per finished hour, well, you know, that this is going to cost you on their, from their perspective, 1,500 bucks, right? That's your investment on there to get them to record it, um, and that includes things like their narration. They'll proof it, they'll correct it, they master it, and they give you the finished files for then you to put onto Audible. Um, another way to find people is just look them out. I, I just finished a book last week by a gentleman. He's a rabbi who had heard me do a biography of Maimonides and a few other religious texts. He's written like a five-hour book about the Torah. He found me through Twitter. He said, I want you to narrate my book. And I said, sure, here's my rate. He said, great, let's get started. So you can also do that. You can track down a specific narrator, but you know the, it comes with a price tag. Yeah, well, I mean, but also I, I feel... You know, something I talk about all the time in video, but it also works with voice is the mere exposure effect, which oh, is, yeah. you know, and and you have that kind of transfer of authority. Because if I've listened to you 20 times and now it's some new book that I have no idea who the author is, well, there's that automatic sense of, well, I know this voice. And even if I'm not thinking it consciously, it's an authoritative book now because I've had you're passing that authority. Um, yes. I think that's it's it's a valid point, especially if someone can't do it themselves. But if someone wants to do it themselves, you have a lot of stuff on your website. I saw I was going through some of the webinars. Um, which one would you suggest it, to start out with of all of, all of your things on your website? So we'll put a link in the show notes to sure. SeanPrattPresents uh, dot com, and if you click at the top, there's webinars. Is there a specific one that you would send people to? Um, I would start with. There's a couple of ones that are sort of like. Audiobook narration 101 kind of stuff for nonfiction. Uh, I'm pulling up my website right now as we speak, so I can give you the specific ones I'm looking at. Um, 
but the uh, let's see here. I can go over to that page. Um, yeah, I'd start with the easy ones. So nonfiction audiobook narration techniques. That's a basic one uh, where you, you start off with the basic ideas, and then um, uh, let's see. And there's another one below that. It's it's a it goes in further more essential techniques. These are all about deconstructing the text. Um, you know, as far as the marketing is concerned, also learning to be a director, that's also a very good one. Those three, I'd say, would be where to start, those three uh, webinars. Um, because the marketing part is, you know, when people come to someone like you and say, look, I have a product, how do I market it now? How do I reach the, the maximum number of people? Uh, the stuff on, that I'm showing on my webinars are more about uh, how narrators market their own careers. But those three, those three webinars on audiobook technique are essential. The thing to remember about uh, nonfiction is that there's structure in the writing. Um, uh, you know, when we're taught to put our ideas down on paper, we get taught, you know, the basic sentence structure, and then we're taught the five-sentence paragraph, and then the five-paragraph essay, and so on. And by and large, those things stick in our heads. And then when we start writing professionally, we still more or less follow that form. Well, now for the author, the trick is to learning to read their own structure. And then you, then there's ways you can change up the read. You know, uh, I tell my students that the best kind of audiobook narrator um, is consistently inconsistent with their narration, meaning it's always changing along the areas of melody, rhythm, tempo, volume, acting choice. But it's all based on the text. So, you know, uh, when I did Relentless, there, there are sections in there that the tone shifts when the author wants to be more uh, aggressive about a certain point or maybe more reflective. But I also look for what I call the, his, the, his basic intellectual argument. Every paragraph has one. You know, the author goes, OK, I want to talk about this thing right now. And then he gives you an anecdote. And then at the end of it, you go, okay, now that's the, all I want to say about that. And then he moves on to the next paragraph. Well, when we teach something, we change the way we, we speak when we're saying, are you paying attention to me? As opposed <laughs> to, let me tell you an anecdote about this. And you have, we, you, know, you have to learn in your own performance what that takes. But uh, getting back to stamina, it's exhausting to do. <laughs> yeah. The amount of, the amount of mental uh, you know, energy it burns is, is tremendous. And, and that's an interesting thing because, you know, I, we, I do a lot of interviews, obviously, on the podcast, but because of video, we do a lot of, I do a lot of interviews on video. I mean, the other two weeks ago, I, I interviewed like 50 people over the course of two days on video. And it, it's, people don't realize it, the intensity and what it does to your, I mean, I can feel my blood sugar change, how much your oh, brain yeah. soaks up. So uh, explain to me how do you, why is that stamina so important and how do you maintain it? And I mean, are you going too far? I mean, do you just sit there? I, I, this is what I, I'm imagining other people imagine is that they get their book out, they get a microphone and you just read and read and read it. And I, I know no. that's not what happens. <laughs> yeah, there's, okay. So there's, okay. So <clears throat> going back to the original idea that an audio book has to be entertaining. Okay. Um, in, um, in fiction, to reach that goal, it's pretty straightforward because a piece of written fiction, its job is to be entertaining as well. And the author has all these storytelling tools they work with that then the, the performer has access to, like, you know, like the plot and plot twists, the genre, the characters, the dialogue, and so on. So it's like a bag of tools. But when we go over to nonfiction, everything goes sideways on us in a really big hurry. 
the first issue is that a piece of nonfiction, written nonfiction, its purpose is to be informative or educational first. Sometimes a piece of nonfiction, the notion that it would be entertaining is not even thought of. And yet, so that's the first obstacle. You have to realize when you're going to narrate a piece of nonfiction, you have to repurpose the book. It must be thought of as being, your goal is to be entertaining first. So, because if you're not, one of two things is going to happen. Uh, either um, they're going to get bored and they're going to send it back and leave you a one-star review. Or if they have to listen to it for work, it's really, literally going to go in one ear and out the other. And either way, you've failed. So the first obstacle you run into is realizing you've got to repurpose the book. Everything, every decision you make has to say, this has to be entertaining first. How do we do that? Um, the second obstacle you run into is, uh, from the perspective of a narrator, um, you know, if you say, hey, Ian, come into the studio, if you're a narrator, hey, come into the studio on Monday, we want you to narrate some nonfiction. What a lot of narrators hear is, hey, come into the studio on Monday, we want you to do some non-acting for us. <laughs> I mean, because it's just a book about Bitcoin, right? Or it's a book about Wall Street investing, right? It's not really acting, right? No, it is. There's, the construct is pretty simple. Um, you, what I teach my students, I call it the TED Talk theory of nonfiction presentation of narration is who are you and you're the author. That's the first point on this three-sided triangle. And then the second point is who is the audience? Who is the book written for as a group? Not just one person. I don't narrate to one person. I narrate to a group of people. So if I'm doing a book on, let's say, Bitcoin. So in my mind, that audience are people who are, they tend to be younger they tend to be more savvy investors. They want to break out of the Wall Street idea. They want to be, you know, they're, they're also computer savvy. They're of a younger generation. And they, they want to break away from this traditional model of monetary usage and do something trailblazing. That's the audience in my head. Well, the third point of the triangle is where would I be as the author in front of that group? What physical location would I be so that uh, you know, it could be a Holiday Inn ballroom. It could be at a TED Talk. It could be at a workshop on Bitcoin. So whatever comes to my mind, whatever works for me. But if you follow those three, I, those three points to their logical conclusion, what happens is the text on the page stops being something to be read. And what it actually is is the transcript of what I said in front of that audience. And that's a fundamental, fundamental shift. It's as if they put a transcript of our interview on paper and then add two other people perform it. <laughs> yeah. Right. Okay. So if you approach the text as not just words to be re read, but to be acted in the sense of I'm on stage and I'm doing a public speaking engagement about Bitcoin, it, cha it fundamentally changes your approach to the material. But that's the second uh, obstacle. The third obstacle we run into is that we just have fewer storytelling tools, you know, mm. um, Whereas in fiction, you have all these fun things to play with, like character voices and zombies and cowboys <laughs> and Indians. Over in nonfiction, all you have to work with is the writer's voice giving you their intellectual argument in a logical progression in order to reveal their truth. And that's it. There's no funny voices. There's no love scenes, nothing. So you have fewer tools to work with, so you'd better understand how to use them, Right. Um, and then the last obstacle, getting coming full circle to your original question, is the last obstacle which can trip up anybody is stamina. Because with the exception of like memoir or 
biography, which sort of has a, a natural rise and fall of tension and release as they tell you the story of that person's life. In nonfiction, like in Relentless, Relentless was relentless. In other words, he sets the tone and energy of the thing in the preface or forward. He sets it up here, and then it maintains that intensity and that drive through the entire book until the very end. You know, there was no chapter in that book about cupcakes and bunnies and his trip to Tahiti. That never <laughs> happened. It was always his drive to tell you his story, and that will wear you out. There's a reason why at the end of the day, all I ever want to do is have a bourbon and watch cartoons on YouTube. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, so, so if, you don't, if you have to train up to that, just like you did, you know, how tired you were doing all those podcasts, that takes a lot of mental and vocal and physical stamina, and the same applies for an audiobook. Yeah, I mean, and that feeling, what it does to your brain is just, it's intense. Um, yeah. Because... It, yeah, using your brain that intense for that long because it's not just simply reading, like you said. It's and it like it, it's amazing now you dissect it. The thing about the lack of tools and then when you have to put into it, um, but it, you know, in the end, it, like we said before, it's a powerful marketing tool. Oh, uh, absolutely. I mean, immensely for not just for the book, but for your voice and who you are. But coming back to that mere exposure effect, do you encounter people on the street that hear your voice and are like, "I know you." <laughs> um, it's only if I'm talking with them and then, then I happen to let slip that I narrate audiobooks. And, and they have to be a fan of audiobooks too. So then they go, I, I, yeah, I know you're, or they say, well, you've got a really smooth voice or whatever. I'm like, oh, thank you. But um, yeah, every so often I'll, you know, I'll be at an airport lounge or something and talking with some people and I let slip that I, this is what I do. And someone goes, wait a minute, did you narrate? such and such. And I'm like, yeah, that was me. And like, Oh my God, you know, <laughs> it's good for a free round of drinks. I'll tell you that. <laughs> There's that bourbon. Uh, <laughs> um, so do you listen to audiobooks? Yes. Um, right now I'm listening to my friend, Scott Brick narrate a book called devil in the white city, which is about the 1892 Chicago Columbia exposition. And also, the first urban serial killer, H.H. Yeah. Holmes. The two things happened simultaneously. It's a great book. It is a great really book. Oh, is, yeah, I read it an... when it came out. And yeah. Scott does a great job. I mean, Scott's a great narrator. He's fantastic. Mm -hmm. And um, So, yes, I do listen to them. Um, I, when I, mainly when I travel. When I'm home, I'm teaching mm -hmm. and recording. So, I'm basically, I'm listening to my students, their homework, which is audio material, or I'm coaching an author. So, that's live. And we're listening to myself. And people, I hardly ever listen to my own work anymore. I'd rather take a beating than listen to my own voice when I talk. <laughs> <laughs> I talk so much anyway. I can't, you know. There are some books that I will say, you know, like Relentless was, I, I was really proud of that one. Infinite Jest by David Foster Wallace was a good one. Um, there's some other nonfiction, you know, there's some books, fiction and nonfiction I've done. I'm really proud of the work. And the writing was so good. That I'm like, yeah, I could listen. I did one last year that I really enjoyed by Tom Nichols called The Death of Expertise. Fascinating topic. about. It's really timely about what's happening right now in our country, about how experts are being run down and dismissed and denigrated. Uh, he's a really smart author. And um, uh, so I, I, for your listeners, if they want to hear something contemporary that I've done that I'm really – I think I really is emblematic of my work, that's a great book too, along with Relentless. Awesome. Yeah. I mean, I, 
I, I've listened to most of the stuff you're talking about, but depth of expertise I haven't. And it's funny because I was going through all your your lists on Audible, and, and I think I spent like fifty bucks just researching <laughs> this. <laughs> the other one is you can also look up one of my other other names. We call him a Nam Devox in audiobook world. I narrate under the name Lloyd James as well. All right. And, uh, so wow. uh, if listeners want to find those books. And um, it's funny, I, you said you've listened to, what, just over 200 books. The irony is is that um, I'll have people say, can I still find all 975 of your books? I'm like, no, there's about 300 you can't find. Uh, I narrated for a company in Albuquerque for several years, did about 200 titles for them called Americana Publishing. They were like Westerns and sci-fi and stuff. And they went bankrupt one day. So all 200 of those books went poof. Oh, my gosh. And I have another 100 they break down into sort of three categories. One third have gone poof because the company went out of business. Another are really, really early Stone Age recordings on tape that have never been digitized. And then finally, there's a third of them that have uh, the the original owner of that book, the company lost the rights to somebody else, and it's been re-recorded by a different narrator. So there's about 300 titles. I've three. I've lost more titles than you've listened to. <laughs> 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 that's crazy. It's crazy. That's crazy. Um, you know, wrap, wrapping up here, you know, when it comes to, you know, you've read, like read and narrated so many books, how has that affected like the way you think and the way you go about life? I mean, oh, it, <laughs> I feel so lucky. You know, I've, I've, I've been paid to read material. I never would have picked up on my own. I, you know, do you want to know how they drill for oil in the middle of the ocean? I did three books on the BP oil disaster. I know exactly how it's done. Do you want to know about Bitcoin? I've done five books. You want to know about Wall Street investing? I've done dozens of books on that. Or being a better salesman or dealing with PTSD. Oh, it's made me such a well-rounded person. I really find myself lucky. Um, but, you know, the other piece of that, too, is that getting back to the authors, is that, you know, my job is to turn in the best performance so that they can market that book. And it, in some cases, I've been told after the fact that the audiobook version has sold as well or better than the print version. And then I feel really I've done my job as a team member for that audiobook. And they can market that thing, and that hopefully leads them to additional work down the line in their own career. And that's, and that's you know, from a business standpoint, that's my job, is to take your words and bring them to life in an entertaining way so that those people can – you know, the, the listener like you would enjoy it. Yeah. Or now the new, the new piece is to, you know, if an author has decided that, yep, I really want to do this, is to do my best to get them ready for that event. You know, there's certain things I make them do. They don't always like it, but in the end they thank me because when they go in the studio for the, the, those several days to record, they're as ready as they could possibly be, far b more ready than they would be otherwise. Kind of like Relentless, right? <laughs> well, you know, something as simple as making them sit in a tiny space, um, put their text on, a, on a, a music stand, like sitting in the bathroom or a closet. And I say, okay, read out loud for 25 minutes to someone. If you stumble over a, a sentence, stop back up and start it again. If you hit a word or phrase you don't know how to pronounce, stop and look it up because that's what you're going to have to do on the day. And then read aloud as if you're reading for a group of people like the TED Talk idea. Do that for 25 minutes. Take a five-minute break. Come back and do it again. Take a five-minute break. Come back and do it again. 
do a five-minute break. That's an hour and a half. The next day, bump it up to two hours. Because when you're in there recording your book, you're looking at a anywhere from a six to eight-hour day of recording. So that's going to teach you very quickly about posture and breathing and making sure you're drinking enough water and when do you start to sag, you know, get up and walk around or need a cup of coffee. But there's no way to prepare yourself for that unless you actually do it, you know. Yeah. And that's just one little thing that I, I work with them on. Just one little thing. Wow. Wow. So, um, Sean, this has been fantastic. Thank you so much. Uh, if someone wants to work with you or to know you, we just go to Sean, uh, Sean com. We'll have that in the show notes. Um, they can Google your name. Um, and if someone's, what's the one last tip that you would give someone getting ready to narrate their own audiobook or hire someone to narrate their own audiobook? Uh, well, there's, there's two bits then. The first one is um, if you're going to do it yourself, like I said, train yourself up to it. And that might mean working with a public speaking coach or someone like me who you know works live with people. But you need to train up for the event and remember that it's not a reading. It's a performance. When you, If you're going to hire somebody else, you should try to find the best narrator you can afford. That's pretty much how it would boil down. You can find, you know, you can get a brand new narrator for royalty share for basically for free on ACX. But what's the end product going to be like? Right? Mm -hmm. So save your pennies. This is a, this is, and think about it on the, not only should you're thinking about the audiobook as a thing by itself, the entertainment value for the listener, but think about your own writing career or whatever you do as, you know, an entrepreneur, whether it's, you know, your, who knows what, the better that event, it's going to open more doors for you that, that, that you really care about. It may seem a little odd, this little thing, this recording over on the side here, but it can have a huge effect on your larger career as an entrepreneur. Yeah. Cause you never know who's going to pick that up, up that would never, never ever picked up the book. Yes. That's awesome. Well, Sean Pratt, thank you so much for being on the show. Thank you for having me. All right. And thank you all for listening. This has been Ian Garlic and the Garlic Marketing Show. Thank you so much for taking Sean and I on your journey. If you haven't signed up already, make sure to sign up for the free training. It's free for a limited time. The Level Up Video Marketing Training. Really take your business to the next level. Just go to authenticweb.media slash level up or click on the show notes and there will be a link right there. I look forward to seeing you in the training and look forward to seeing you level up your business. That's it for the Garlic Marketing Show. If you want to get the inside scoop and the latest techniques, make sure to follow Ian Garlic on Facebook.